0: Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This 62nd episode of Community Sanctorum is the fifth and final in our look at monasticism in the Middle Ages. To a lesser extent for the Dominicans, but a bit more for the Franciscans, monastic orders were an attempt to bring reform to the Western Church, which during the late Middle Ages had fallen very far from the apostolic ideal the institutional church had become little more than one more political body, with vast tracts of land, a massive hierarchy, a complex bureaucracy, and it accumulated powerful allies and enemies across Europe. The clergy and older orders had degenerated into an illiterate fraternity. Many priests and monks could neither read nor write, and engaged in gross immorality while hiding behind their vows. Now, of course, it wasn't this way everywhere, But it was in enough places that Francis was compelled to use poverty as a means of reform. The Franciscans who followed after Francis were quickly absorbed back into the church's structure, and the reforms that Francis envisioned were stillborn. Dominic wanted to return to the days when literacy and scholarship were part and parcel of clerical life. The Dominicans carried on his vision, but when they became prime agents of the Inquisition, they failed to balance grace with truth. Modern depictions of medieval monks often cast them in a stereotypical role as either sinister agents of immorality or bumbling fools with good hearts but soft heads. Surely there were some of each, but there were many thousands who were sincere followers of Jesus and did their best to represent him. There's every reason to believe that they lived quietly in monasteries and convents, prayed, read, and engaged in humble manual labor throughout their lives there were spiritual giants as well as those who were thoroughly wicked and corrupt wretches. After Augustine of Canterbury brought the faith to England, well, it was as though the sun had come out. Another among God's champions was Malachi, whose story was recounted by Bernard de Clairvaux in the 12th century. Stories like his were one of the main attractions for medieval people who looked to the saints for reassurance that at least some had managed to lead exemplary lives, And had shown others how to as well. The requirement of sanctity was easy to stereotype. In the life of St. Erkenwald, we read that he was, quote, perfect in wisdom, modest in conversation, vigilant in prayer, chaste in body, dedicated to holy reading, and rooted in charity, unquote. By the late 11th century, it was even possible to hire a hagiographer, a writer of saintly stories, such as Osborne of Canterbury, who would, for a fee, Write a life of a dead abbot or priest in the hope that he would be canonized, that is, declared by the church to be a saint. There was strong motive to do this, for where there had been a saint, well, a shrine sprang up, marking with a monument his or her monastery, or house, or bed, clothes, relics. All were much sought after as objects of veneration. Pilgrimages were made to the saint's shrine, money dropped in the ubiquitous money box. But it wasn't just a church or shrine that benefited. The entire town prospered. After all, pilgrims needed a place to stay, food to eat, souvenirs to take home, proving that they'd performed the pilgrimage and racked up some spiritual points. Business boomed. So, hagiographers included a list of miracles that the saint performed. These miracles were, of course, evidence of God's approval. There was competition between towns to see their abbot or their priest canonized because it meant that pilgrims would flock to their city. It was assumed that a holy man or woman left behind, in the objects touched or places visited, a residual spiritual power, a merit which the less pious could acquire for assistance in their own troubles by going on a pilgrimage and praying at the shrine. A similar power adhered in the body of the saint or parts of the body, fingernails or hair, which could conveniently be kept in relic holders called reliquaries, People prayed near and touched them and hoped that a miracle, a healing, or help in some other urgent request would come from God. The balance between the active and the contemplative life was the core issue for those that aspired to be a genuine follower of Jesus and a good example to others. They struggled with the question of how much time should be given to God and how much to work in the world. From the Middle Ages, there comes no account of the enlightened idea That the secular and the religious could be merged into one overall passion for and service of God. In the medieval way of thinking, to be truly godly, a sequestered religious life was required. The idea that a blacksmith could worship God while working at his anvil was nowhere in sight. Francis came closest, but even he considered working for a wage and the call to glorify God as mutually exclusive. Francis urged work as part of the monk's life, but depended on charity for support. It wouldn't be until the Reformation that the idea of vocation liberated the sanctity of work. Because the cloistered or sequestered religious life was regarded as the only way to please God, many of the greats from the 4th century on supported monasticism. I'll list now some of the names who held this view, trusting that if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you'll recognize them. There is St. Anthony of Egypt, Athanasius, Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, Ambrose, Augustine, Jerome, and Benedict of Nursia. In the Middle Ages, the list is, well, just as imposing. Names like Anselm, Albertus Magnus, Bonaventura, Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, and a host of others, ending with Francis and, of course, Dominic. The Middle Ages were a favorable period for the development of monastic communities. The religious, political, and economic forces at work across Europe conspired to make monastic life for both men and women a viable, even a preferred, option. As is so often the case in movies and books depicting this period, sure, there were some young men and women who balked at entering a monastery or convent when forced by their parents, but there were far more who wanted to engage this sequestered life who were denied by their parents. When war decimated the male population and women outnumbered men by large margins, becoming a nun was the only way to survive. Young men who knew that they weren't cut out for the hard labor of farm life or military service, well, they could always find a place to pursue their passion for learning in a monastery. As in most institutions, the fate of the brothers and the sisters depended on the quality of their leader, the abbot or abbess. If she was a good and effective leader, the convent thrived. If he was a tyrannical brute, well, the monastery shriveled. In those monasteries where scholarship prevailed, ancient manuscripts were preserved by scribes who laboriously copied them, and by doing so became well-versed in the classics. It was from these intellectual safe houses the Renaissance would eventually emerge. By drawing to themselves the best minds of the time from the 10th well into the 13th century, Monasteries were the nursery of piety, and the centers of missionary and civilizing energy. When there was virtually no preaching taking place in churches, the monastic community preached powerful sermons by calling men's thoughts away from war and bloodshed to brotherhood and religious devotion. The motto of some of the monks was, by the plow and the cross. In other words, they were determined to build the kingdom of God on earth by preaching the gospel and transforming the world by honest and hard, humble work. Monks were pioneers in the cultivation of the ground, and after the most scientific fashion then known, they taught agriculture, the tending of vines and fish, the breeding of cattle, and the manufacture of wool. They built roads and some of the best buildings. In intellectual and artistic concerns, the convent was the main school of the times. It trained architects, painters, and sculptors. There, the deep problems of theology and philosophy were studied, and when the universities arose, the convent furnished them with their first and most renowned teachers. So popular was the monastic life that religion seemed to be in danger of running into a monkery and society of being little more than a collection of convents. The Fourth Lateran Council tried to counter this tendency by forbidding the establishment of new orders, but no council was ever more ignorant of their immediate future. Pope Innocent III was scarcely in his grave before the Dominicans and the Franciscans received full papal sanction. During the 11th and 12th centuries, an important change came. All monks were ordained as priests. Before that time, it was the exception for a monk to be a priest, which meant that they well weren't allowed to offer the sacraments. But once they were priests, they could. The monastic life was praised as the highest form of earthly existence. The convent was compared to the promised land and treated as the shortest and surest route to heaven. The secular life, even the life of the secular priest, was compared to Egypt. The passage to the cloister was called conversion, and monks, well, they were converts. They had reached the Christian ideal. The monastic life was likened to the life of angels. Bernard said to his fellow monks, quote, Are you not already like the angels of God, having abstained from marriage? Unquote. Even kings and princes desired to take the monastic vow and be clad in a monk's habit. So even though Frederick II was a bitter foe of the Pope, as he neared his death, he changed into the robes of a Cistercian monk. Rogers II and the Third of Sicily, along with William of Nevers, they all dressed up in monk's robes as their end drew near. They thought that doing so would meet a better chance at heaven, I guess kind of spiritual camouflage to get by Peter. Accounts from the time make miracles part and parcel of the monk's daily life. He was surrounded by spirits. Visions and revelations occurred day and night. Devils roamed about at all hours in the cloistered halls. They were on evil errands to deceive the unwary and shake the faith of the careless. Elaborate accounts of these encounters are given by Peter the Venerable in his work on miracles he gives a detailed account of how these restless spiritual foes would pull the bedclothes off of sleeping monks and chuckling leave them across the cloister. While monasteries and converts were a major part of life in Middle Age Europe, many of them bastions of piety and scholarship, others didn't live up to that reputation and became blockades to progress. As the years marched forward, the monastic ideal of holiness degenerated into a mere form that became superstitious and suspicious of anything new. So while some monasteries served as midwives to the Renaissance, others were like Herod's soldiers trying to slay it in its infancy. As we end this episode, I thought it good to do a brief review of what are called the hours, sometimes known as the divine office or the breviary. This is how monks and nuns divided their day. The time for these divisions varied from place to place, but generally it went like this. In the early morning before dawn, a bell was rung that awakened the monks or nuns to a time of private reading and meditation. Then they all gathered for nocturnes, in which a psalm was read, there was chanting, and then some lessons from scripture or uh, church fathers. After that, they went back to bed for a bit and got up at dawn for another service called Lodz. Lodz was followed by another period of personal reading and prayer which resolved in the cloister as they would again gather for prime at 6 a.m. Prime was followed by a period of work, which ended with terse, a time for group prayer at about 9 a.m. Then there's more work from about 10 to just before noon, when the nuns and brothers gathered for sext, a short service where a few psalms were read. That's followed by the midday meal, a nap, another short service at about 3 p.m. called Nun, named for the ninth hour since dawn. Then comes a few hours of work, dinner about just before 6 p.m., and then vespers at 6. After vespers, the nuns and monks have a time of personal private prayers, and then regather for the brief service called Compline before hitting the sack. Protestants and evangelicals might wonder where the idea for the canonical hours came from. There's some evidence they're derived from the practice of the apostles, who as Jews observed set times during the day for prayer. In Acts 10, we read how Peter prayed at the sixth hour. The Roman centurion Cornelius, who had adopted the Jewish faith, prayed at the ninth hour. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas worshipped at midnight, though that may have been because they were in stocks in the Philippian jail. But as early as the 5th century, Christians were using references in the Psalms as cues to pray in the morning, at midday, and at midnight. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.